This morning I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 24. I'm reading out of the New Revised Standard Version this morning, just like the way it says a few things in Scripture. I felt very impressed to to share what I'm going to share with you this morning. And I won't say it's been easy. Uh, Sometimes things come to you easily. Sometimes it's great struggle. This was one of the weeks I would say it was great struggle. And when I discover when things have been great struggle and you're working through heaviness, um, it's because God wants to say something and God wants to do something. And so I do feel that this is more than just another message. I think it's, it's prophetic as well. God wants to speak. Colossians 1.24, listen to what Paul the Apostle has the nerve to say. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings. And that's the response I thought I'd get. (laughs) I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's affliction. For the sake of his body, that is, the church. Perhaps this is a strange verse to read. Rejoicing in suffering. Completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What on earth does this mean? Now, I assume everybody here would be fairly familiar with the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He obviously endured an awful lot of hardships in taking the gospel to the world. Yet, he came to the point, and he learned this lesson, in facing the hardships, that he would even boast in them. Listen to him in Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, where he says, And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And oh, we will boast in that. Sharing the glory of God. Yes! Finish the verse. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings. Now Paul realized that by bearing hardships on behalf of the people of Christ, that he was entering in to a fellowship of Christ's sufferings. A fellowship that he wanted to know more fully and more intimately. His words in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, this version puts it this way, I want to know Christ... And the power of his resurrection 
and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. He would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, the sufferings of Christ abound in us, are abundant for us. Paul knew the day he was converted. When Ananias went to him in Acts chapter 9 and gave him a prophetic word about the rest of his life, that word included, and what things you must suffer for my sake, for my name's sake. He knew the day he was called of God, he was called to embrace suffering, and he would never avoid suffering in the pursuit of the call of God in his life. Now, the New Testament promises you something. It promises that you will suffer. Aren't you excited about such promises? Listen to the words of Jesus. John 15, verses 18 to 20, it said, Jesus said, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to this world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to this world, but I have chosen you out of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, Servants are not above their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. He goes on in John chapter 16 and verse number 33, it says, In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. Now, the New Testament, for us who live in the affluent Western modern society, I think we read over so much of what the New Testament says. The New Testament is not shy in indicating this reality to us over and over. As a matter of fact, I am convinced through reading the New Testament as if I had lived somewhere else in the world besides affluent Western society. I am convinced that when you are saved and converted in the basic foundations that the, the church gave to you, they gave you a course in enduring persecution. As standard beginner baby food to begin your Christian life. I'm convinced of that. Acts chapter 14, 22, Paul saying to new converts, it is through much tribulation that we will enter into the kingdom. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 to 4, to an infant church only months old in the Lord, the instruction was, you're going to get it from this world, and we're telling you, you are going to be suffering affliction. So don't be surprised now that it's happening. Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Every new convert was trained in that. Every new convert was trained in that. 
Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29 that not only is that going to happen, but it's a privilege. Listen to Philippians 1.29. For he has graciously granted you the privilege of not only believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. For us who live in the West, we read over that stuff and it doesn't click with us. Other parts of the world, it's a reality of every day. However, the New Testament gives you other promises. And the promise is not the removal of challenges and difficulties. But listen to this. There's a promise of unexplainable joy in the midst of it. Now, that should have got an amen. (laughs) Inexplicable joy. We have a mindset of a rapture mindset. We have a mindset that God get me out of here before it gets difficult circumstances. I don't see that in the Bible. What I see is joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. Not an escape from pressure, but the power of God in the midst of your pressure. If you don't say amen, I'll run around the building and say it for you. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Listen to what Jesus said. Blessed, happy, a privilege it is when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets which were before you. James was written to people who were suffering. And James chapter 1 verse 2 says, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. First Peter 1. First Peter written to people in the Colosseum of Rome where their life threatened, persecuted beyond comprehension. Nero lighting them up at night and pit, baptizing them and I don't know what, some pitch of some sort and setting them on fire, facing lions. 1 Peter was written to people exposed to that kind of stuff. What are you going to tell people like that? 1 Peter 1, 6-8, In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Even if now for a little while you had to have to suffer various trials, you believe in Him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. Are we people of the Spirit? Are we people of the Spirit? In the midst of such persecution and threat, Old King James Bible says, it's joy unspeakable 
and full of glory. So you're not promised deliverance from afflictions and pressures and difficulties and trials and challenges. As long as you're in the world, it's our portion. But we are promised an inexplainable, uncomprehensible, indescribable joy in the midst of it. I've been in churches where they do it. Come on. <laughs> Remember being in Jackson, Mississippi, I tell you, I was the only, no, me and one other person, only white people in that place. I tell you, they ran. You say something they like, they got up out of their seat, they ran to the front and they ran to the back. It's fun preaching to that. It's fun preaching to that. But no matter how hard the hardship is, there will always be Come on, no matter how difficult, how intense the challenge is, there will always be a greater measure of inexplicable, joyous grace to compensate for you. Amen. You and I can understand the New Testament a whole lot better if we realize the conditions of the people who originally received these letters, these epistles. For instance, for those who first received the Gospel of Mark, the audience that it was intended to help and encourage were people who were disenfranchised, the poor, those who had been displaced and in a migrant refugee status, as if we don't know what that's about today. It was written to the marginalized, those who experienced loss of income for, because they follow Jesus, those people who were about to be martyred. You and I have no idea what, what went through their minds when they heard Jesus say, you've got to take up your cross if you're going to be my disciple. And as encouraging people to embrace the hardship, not shy away from it, but knowing that through it all, there was going to be an unexplainable joy that rises up within them that will carry them through, and the joy would be greater than the affliction. You're a hard sell today, I tell you. As I said, for those of us who live in the comfortable West, we experience none of these things. Therefore, we tend to read right over them, and it doesn't really register with us, and we miss the importance of those penetrating words and instructions from the Lord. In other words, because we're comfortable, we tend to totally bypass the entire biblical theology of suffering as if God is here to deliver us from all trials instead of take us through them. It's an escape mindset instead of the power of God in the midst of our weakness mindset. We see that suffering in the New Testament is not just the inevitable result because we identify with Jesus. Uh, this is where I'm going with this. But I want you to catch this phrase because I believe this is a word from the Lord. The right response to afflictions and difficulties becomes a very powerful and a very influential way that the kingdom of heaven is promoted 
and expanded. The proper response becomes the means by which God promotes and expands the kingdom of heaven. Failure to respond in the right way is wasted. Trials wasted. The proper way in responding, in which James is written for that purpose, 1 Peter is written for that purpose, the entire book of Revelation has that motive behind it. To teach us the proper way to respond to afflictions, hardships, and difficulties, because what is at stake is the promotion and the expansion of the kingdom of heaven. Now, thank God for grace. Amen. How many are grateful for grace? Thank God for grace. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, the grace and the power of God was manifested in many varied and almost opposing ways at times. For instance, we are thrilled to read in Hebrews 11 that by faith the Red Sea parted. Should have been there. I like visiting all these places in the Bible story, so you need to come with me on some of these trips I take. You should have been there. The demonstration of the power of God at the Red Sea, the walls of water, walking through it is more spectacular and incredible, and it blows your imagination of the demonstration of the power of God. What amazing grace God gave. Or you should have been there at the city of Jericho when those walls came down. You should have been there. You have any idea how big those things were? How thick they were? The chariot races they had on the top of those walls? Have you any idea about the shout? And the walls came down? I mean, have you ever been in the meetings when the power of God fell? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there when heaven comes down? I was there in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe when it happened. I was there in Kigali, Rwanda when it happened. I've been privileged to see the whole room saturated, soaking in the presence of God, and miracles happen. Darla and I were in a meeting back in Canada where a woman gets out of a water baptism tank, and she was this big when she went in, and she came out of that water that big, and there was an instant miracle in her body that everybody could visibly see through and off crutches, braces off her legs, running around the place. You should have been there. We all want to see that, don't we? Hungry for the presence of God. There's one way to it, church. Let's pray and pray and pray. And never give up. But keep persevering in prayer. Hebrews 11 is powerful. We're inspired by it. But let's read the whole chapter. Because if we continue to read Hebrews 11, we discover that there are many people in that chapter who refuse. That's the word it's used. I don't want a miracle. I refuse to be delivered from it. Why? Because they knew that a martyr's crown received at the judgment yet to come was more to be desired than deliverance from a trial in the present. Check it out. That's what your Bible says. So no, I, I, I prefer not to be delivered because I'm looking for the reward 
And if I have the joy of God without deliverance, there's a greater reward at the end of the story than the power demonstrated here and now. Is that what, that what it actually says? Hebrews chapter 11, read it. Some of them were mocked and flogged. In Hebrews 11, some of them suffered in chains imprisonment. Some of them were stoned to death, sawn in two, killed by the sword, went about without proper clothing. They were destitute, persecuted, tormented. They wandered in desert, hid in caves and holes in the ground. And they are commended for their great faith. Amazing. And the writer of Hebrews, back in chapter 10, is exhorting them. He says, when you came to the Lord, you suffered tremendously. You suffered the loss of your life, the loss of your belongings, the loss of your homes, because you embraced Christ. But Hebrews, 2, or Hebrews 10, 32-34 says, and you did it with joy. Unexplainable joy in the midst of these severe, difficult Unimaginable sufferings. So the truth is this, and here's a little uh, a refining of our thinking here. The power is not in the miracle. The power is in the grace that becomes evident. Sometimes grace issues forth in deliverance in the here and the now, and there's an outright display of miraculous power doing things that blow the human imagination. Bible's full of miracles like that. And sometimes the grace issues forth in unexplainable strength and joy and transformation under the worst of pressures. And the people are sustained by a supernatural peace and a supernatural joy that makes absolutely no sense to the outside observer. Is one greater than another? The fact is, no, they are two different expressions of the power of God. Two different expressions of the power of God. And if we are in a difficult situation, what do we do? What should I believe for? There's only one way to find out. You pray your way into the heart of God until He talks to you. But people would just rather me give you give them formulas. There's no formulas. It is all relationship with God, and there's no shortcut to praying your way into the heart of God. No shortcut to do it. Wish there was. Don't you think a formula would be easier? But no, it requires a response, a prayer. And it's up to God which way His grace will be expressed. He knows what's best. But listen to this carefully. It is through... The power of evidenced grace by which God validates the truth of the gospel. And I'm going to repeat that because it's important. It is through the power of evidenced grace that God validates the truth of the gospel. And it's so important, I will say it again. It is through the power of evidenced grace that God validates the truth of the gospel. 
You've heard me say many times, and I will continue to press this point home, the main message of Jesus when he came to preach the gospel was this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come. That's the content of the gospel. It's the kingdom, it's the kingdom, it's the kingdom, and in the person and the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom has begun, it's arrived, and it's inaugurated, and Jesus came. The kingdom has come. When Jesus said such words to the, the culture of his day, and there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots and all these different groupings of people in the time of Jesus, and there were those who couldn't care less. But when Jesus came and John the Baptist came with that message that the kingdom of heaven has come, all of Israel was set ablaze. National sentiments rose to the surface. Hope that had been buried for centuries was fueled into flame again. And the whole nation comes alive with this concept. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? But the kingdom came contrary to the expectations that people had. Jesus did not initiate a military takeover. He did not call fire down to consume his enemies. Even the twelve disciples were very confused. Master, can we have the right hand and the left hand in your kingdom when you come? Remember James and John? Remember that? I wonder if they saw Jesus on his throne with that crown of thorns on his head, if they still wanted the right hand and the left hand. That was given for a couple of thieves. <laughs> but you remember, they're so confused. And Jesus says this, and listen to the words of Jesus. Mark 10, 42-44. You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as the rulers lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whosoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The message of the kingdom is this. The kingdom of heaven wins. The kingdoms of this world pass away. But the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated. And the kingdom will be consummated when Jesus comes back again. The kingdom of heaven wins. Come on. The kingdom of heaven wins. But how does it win? Is the question. It wins... Not through blood shedding, but it wins through gracious self-giving on behalf of your enemies. You overcome evil with good. I'll say that again. It wins not through blood shedding, but it wins through gracious self-giving on behalf of your enemies. Isn't that what Jesus taught? It grows. The kingdom of heaven grows. But it grows through apparent weakness, not through conquest. 
And it grows through weakness rather than conquest. It thrives. The kingdom of heaven is alive and it thrives. But it thrives through a willingness to suffer rather than inflict suffering. That's the message all through the Gospels about the kingdom of heaven. Why is this the case? And I'll tell you why I believe is because God wants to validate the truth of the gospel before the eyes of an observing but unbelieving world. The gospel is validated through this. How does it work? The world needs to witness the supernatural grace of God sustaining the very people it inflicts suffering upon. Forgive me for the repetition, but as promised by Jesus, the world will afflict us. But, as promised by Jesus, God's people receive a supernatural grace overflowing from their hearts that it will baffle the very world that afflicts us. Amen? Now, we often in prayer, when we pray for the lost, we often ask God, would you please open their hearts and open their eyes to see spiritual reality. Do we understand what we might be praying when we ask that? Where do you think they're going to see it? Lord, open their eyes that they might see spiritual reality. And God says, and may I make you exhibit A? That's right. That's right, it's right. May I make you exhibit A so they can see it? You see, a demonstration of overwhelming grace in the midst of an impossible situations, it has the power to open their eyes. It has the power to plow open hearts that have become hard. Grace in your life, in the midst, joy in the midst of the most excruciating, difficult circumstances has the power to plow open the heart of everybody who sees you. We want God to open their hearts. May I make you exhibit A. That's exciting stuff. Come on. Exciting stuff. That way they can receive the truth of the gospel. The outside observer can hardly be unaffected by it. Some will persist in resisting, but they cannot remain untouched by the demonstration. Three things when it comes to evangelism. One, I believe God has anointed specific people to preach the gospel with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. I believe it's a calling and it's anointing, and it's a gift that not everybody has. But there are people who are called and specialize in that gift. Absolutely. First Peter 1.12, they do it with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Two, God confirms that word with signs following. I am Pentecostal and unashamedly so. Say it again. I am Pentecostal and unashamedly so. I believe in the power of God to heal bodies and to bring deliverance to people. I believe the kingdom is here to break the cycle of sin right here and now and they can enjoy the power of God long before they die and go to heaven. 
kingdom of heaven has come. But thirdly, God validates the reality and the truth of the gospel by granting amazing demonstrations of grace in the lives of those who suffer. It validates the truth of the gospel. Isn't that true of Stephen in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 6, 7, 8, the martyrdom of Stephen. Do you remember his face shone like that of an angel? Do you remember that? Do you remember one last time in Acts chapter 7, he able to amount a defense? He's able to recite the whole story of Israel one last time with absolutely overwhelming conviction that so moved this people that they had to kill him? I want to see people convicted, but my goodness, to die as a result of it. An amazing thing. As the stones were knocking him unconscious, as his life was draining from his battered body, was there not a manifestation of supernatural grace? Was he not lifted to visions of heaven? Were not the heavens opened and he saw the Son of Man not sitting but standing on the right hand of authority and majesty? Did he not see Jesus welcoming him home? Wasn't the, the nature of Jesus with perfection reproduced in Stephen at that moment? That he could say, Lord, lay not this sin against this charge. Sound just like Jesus, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He sounds like Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Stephen says, Lord, same thing. Receive my spirit. Perfectly reproduced in the midst of excruciating trial. Amazing. And who witnessed all that? Who had a hard heart? Right there watching it. Who was resisting everything within him? against the gospel. A man named Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a witness of inexplicable glory in the moment of agony. And guess what it did to Saul? Guess what it did to Saul? It hunted him down. That demonstration of grace hunted him down until he had to submit to the reality. Stephen was exhibit A, opening the eyes of an unbeliever. Amazing, isn't it? What about Paul himself? Saul becomes Paul. Well, Acts 16, he had a friend named Silas. Philippi cast the demon out this girl. The whole city gets into a riot. I mean, do we have any idea what it's like to be beaten by rods? To be flogged with cruelty? Do you have any idea of the pain that was in their body? And then the humiliation of taking these battered bodies and throwing them into the most innermost dungeon in the Philippian jail in the darkest place? Oh, what a time to moan and complain. I serve God and this is what I get. I get my whole life and this is what I get. Now you know the story. It's midnight. And there is a blaze of glory going on in their hearts. 
there is joy unspeakable and full of glory, that no matter what that outward pressure is, the power of God, that grace of God is being manifest in their heart and in their soul, and in the most difficult circumstances, they are so exuberant about praise in the most back room of that building, they must have been making one huge noise for the rest of the prison to hear them shouting and singing and praising at midnight in the back dungeon. Inexplainable joy and grace in the midst of the worst conditions. And what's the result? People come to you and say, what have I got to do to get saved? The demonstration of grace plows open people's hearts and they will seek you out about salvation. So shall we continue to pray? Lord, open their eyes. Yes, we should. Absolutely should. Grace revealed under pressure results in conversions. Grace revealed under pressure results in conversions. Paul the Apostle recognized the reality of that. And when you read his epistles, every time he endured hardship, he says, this is just an opportunity to be an exhibit of the power of God for the sake of a lost and a dying world. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where he said, you received the word in much affliction, but with incredible joy. And even though this whole coming to God was in the face of severe persecution, read Acts chapter 17 and about the persecution that church had when it was founded by Paul the Apostle. And in much affliction, and he says, with joy. And it says, are the presence of joy in the midst of this? It's the power to convict people of the reality of what we're preaching. Read our, read our Bibles. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 12, where Paul in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians goes through a whole catalog, always persecuted but never forsaken, cast down but never down and out. Just read through what he says. And then he makes this statement in verse 12, So death is working in me, but the result of the glory and the grace of God in my life, sustaining me in the midst of this, with this incredible joy, that comes up in the midst of these circumstances, produces life in you. Paul was exhibit A of their truth, and everything he preached about the power of God. So let me repeat it again. The manifestation of supernatural grace in the midst of impossible situations plows open the hearts of sinners so they can receive the gospel deeply into their hearts. Lord, open their hearts. There's plenty of evidence of that in the book of Acts. How many persecutions do you read in the first five chapters of the book of Acts? Have you counted how many times it happened? But the Bible says as they responded to this persecution and they prayed in Acts chapter 4 and they prayed that God would show forth miracles and extend his hands for miracles in the name of Jesus. And then it goes on to say, and great grace was upon the church. In the midst of it all, great 
grace was upon the church. And what's the result? People joined because they are attracted by the grace. This grace validates the gospel. In other words, the unbeliever is awakened to spiritual realities because that spiritual reality is plainly manifest in our lives when we're under pressure. How is the gospel, I'm going to wrap this up here, how, do, how does the kingdom expand? How does it expand? Again, we have to ask this question, what is the gospel? You've heard me say this before, but it bears repetition. The gospel that we proclaim is not that God showed himself strong. It's that God showed himself weak. Almighty, eternal, sovereign God took the position of weakness. He took on human form. He became in human form subject to death. And in his weakness, mere mortal man could murder him on the cross. And because God identified in being weak, that's why we're saved. We want God to blaze power all the time. But it's in the weakness of God that you're saved. That's the gospel. And in second and first and second Corinthians, when Paul has to give a defense of his apostleship, you know, Paul, you claim to be a, an apostle. Well, where's your, where's your jet? Where's your private car? Where's your millions of pounds? Where's your, your big houses? Where's this, where's the sign of triumph of mighty man of God? And Paul says, oh, you don't think you understand the gospel. The message of God is that you're, we're saved because God became weak. And as is the gospel, so is the messenger. I will live out the very message that I preach. And that is, the grace of God is effective in the midst of weakness. That is the gospel. That was his answer to the critics in the Corinthian church. And then we take that a step further. And so how was redemption carried forward into the world? And the answer is, in the very same principle. The glory of God shines through the midst of our pain and suffering. Our suffering does not add to the redemptive value of Christ's sacrifice, but it exhibits it for the whole world to see. That's how it works. So then, as Christ gave himself for us, you and I must give ourselves to be an exhibit evidencing his empowering presence and grace. The joy and peace given to us in the midst of hardship becomes the tangible expression of the spiritual reality of the gospel that we preach. It will plow up the hearts of unbelievers and make them soft. The apostolic perspective, both Peter and Paul, very quickly, and I'm finished. If you want to read First Peter, it's only five chapters long. Read it. Because it was written to encourage people to embrace hardships and trials at the hands of a very cruel Roman Empire. And a major theme that drives the agenda of this epistle is give the proper response to the persecution, so an unbelieving world can see my presence.
I'll just read chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, where it says, Beloved, be not surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice! insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when His glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, and I, oh, I like this part, because the Spirit of glory, which is the Spirit of God, is resting on you. Have I ever told you what the end of the story is? The end of the story is Glory. And on that day when Jesus appears, I, the words cannot describe, I can't imagine it, you can't, the glory that is revealed on that day. But what Peter is saying is the Holy Spirit takes this, a portion of this glory at that day. And when you're back here slugging it in the trenches perhaps, or facing hardships and difficulties, and you're weary and you're wore out emotionally, you're wore out mentally, you're wore out physically with the whole thing, and the pressure is just all over you, what Peter is saying, rejoice. Because what God's going to do, He's going to take this glory that waits for you over here, He's going to bring it back in time by the Spirit, and He's going to put that glory in your soul. It's going to make you joyful. It's going to make you happy. You, the world's going to say, what's with that person? But there's going to be a joy and a power and the spirit of glory. Your future inheritance is alive inside your heart and your soul now. And you're so thrilled with that presence of God and your future inheritance. You're already tasting it that you make this decision like Paul would say. I'm telling you, I reckon that all the sufferings of this present time are not worthy the trials and the difficulties and the afflictions and the challenges and the hardships I go through are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The spirit of glory rests upon you. Wow. And when the world sees the spirit of glory, it has this power to open their hearts and bring people to himself. Paul was so alive to that reality that in 2 Corinthians 11 and 2 Corinthians 12, when he got a little bit weary of the challenges, thorn in the flesh, you know, God, can't we just get rid of this, please? <laughs> a little tired of being plots in my life all the time, a little tired of challenges and hardships and afflictions, and I really don't care to spend another night in the day in the, uh, in the deep, and I don't care to have another prison sentence. I don't care. You know, ever get that way? A little weary of it? And he prays three times. And God says, tell you what, Paul. I want you to be an exhibit of my grace and glory. So how about this? Let's, how about no for an answer? But I'll tell you what. I'll give you more grace than you can handle. I'll give you overwhelming sustenance and joy and grace. And you'll shine with the power of God in the midst of the difficulties and the challenges. And the spirit of glory will rest on you. And Paul said, oh man, if that means the power of Christ may dwell on me, I don't want deliverance. 
Instead, I'm going to start boasting. I'm going to start rejoicing. I'm going to start shouting. I'm going to start getting excited about these challenges coming my way because I am going to experience the presence of the living God welling up within my heart and within my soul. And I tell, I'd rather have that than deliverance. And he says, I boast in it. I rejoice in it. I become a demonstration of the power of God to a lost and dying world. Why do you think people believe me when I preach? Wow. So church, for the sake of a lost and a dying world for which we are praying, don't waste your sorrows. For the sake of a lost and a dying world, give yourself to the cross so they may see and they may believe. Amen.